0: Today, we are speaking with the Vice President of Placement Resources with our local CBC. Join us today on Fostering the Future.
1: Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value, regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future.
0: Make sure you follow us on Facebook, or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and today I'm here with Sam, and we have special guest Tori in the studio. Welcome, Tori. Happy to be here. We're super excited to have you here, especially because we recently redid the studio and uh, it's nice to break it in. We have Sam here today. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Excited to be here. Tori, we have a very serious question to ask you. I'm ready. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks?
1: I had a feeling you might ask that. I have two different drinks. I have a Cafe Mocha Grande Hot with just one pump of mocha and non-fat milk and no whipped cream. Or I have a chocolate cold brew, which needs no modifications whatsoever. A
0: friend of mine does most of her work out of a Starbucks. They let her sample some of the new fall items, which are actually coming out tomorrow. And I'm really excited about it because I'm a big fan of chai. As of tomorrow, I believe they have a pumpkin chai, which, you know, I'm going to wake up early
1: for. I know you were going to say pumpkin.
0: Isn't that wild that they already have them out in August, <laughs> yes. but the um, Halloween decorations are in the stores yeah. already. Yes. It's wild. Speaking of stores, if you're in a target, what
1: department are you spending the most time in? Probably the household goods. So the baskets and the organizers and all of those items, the magnolia,
0: like heart, is it hearth in hand? Is that what it's called? That stuff is
1: so cute. Mm -hmm. But
0: my department is really like kids clothes. Like my son will always say, if he can't find me on Target, like that's where he goes. And he'll walk up and he'll be like, I knew I'd find you here. So Tori, what does your
1: family look like in your home? Uh, So in my home right now is my husband and my 15 year old son. And I have a 21-year-old son who's gone to college. So you're a mom. I'm a mom. That brings a great perspective to your work. I always think it's interesting when I work with like case managers who like haven't had kids. And it wasn't when I was a case manager, I wasn't a mom yet. And when I was a PI, I wasn't a mom yet. It definitely gave me something to look back on later.
0: What was your first experience with foster care?
1: Was there an experience that you had knowing someone? There was. um, And I actually tried to avoid coming down this path. But it didn't work out. I was drawn to it, regardless of my efforts to stay away. Uh, so I had a friend growing up. Uh, my dad was in law enforcement at the time. And and one of my strongest childhood memories, and, and you'll understand why, is that I woke up. It was about 2 a.m. and my dad was waking me up because he'd been out on patrol and had responded to a domestic violence incident. And he brought my best friend home with him because she was present and had witnessed the violence and her mom's boyfriend had harmed her. And so my dad brought her home and she crawled into bed with me. Child welfare was different then. And so the system didn't get involved in the same way that it does now. And so there wasn't anybody to check on her or to make decisions or to take her out of the home. And she really should have come out of the home. She ended up going down a bad path and going into DJJ and she was really never the same after having that exposure to other kids in that environment. How old were you? I would say I was about 10. Wow.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people have had some type of experience that made them want to do that, but for it to be someone that close to you Mm -hmm. and that had to have been a lot for a 10-year-old and one of the people that we interviewed in a previous season who was working in licensing, she was in foster care when she was a kid. As you said, it was a little different Mm -hmm. than... When she was first removed, she was placed with a relative and then nobody ever checked on her and she grew up in a very unsafe environment even though she was like technically in foster care she's like this incredible person she eventually found herself her own family she had a friend from work or school or something like that and moved in with them in that home someone started abusing her so she found a new family it's not how most people react to that situation most people tend to fall back into the behaviors that their parents do because that's what they're around that's what's normalized and they don't have the resources to kind of get out of that so so for her to be like, this isn't safe. I'm going to go somewhere safe. And, you know, she created this family for herself that is her family today. They worked in social work and she always told them, I'm never doing that. I mean, I can't imagine wanting to when they drop the ball on you. But then she did. <laughs>
1: she sounds incredibly resilient.
0: She is incredibly resilient. She's a therapist working with bio parents now. So that's actually pretty awesome. Why did you decide to start working in child welfare?
1: Initially, when I went to school, I did resist social work. Um, and tried a couple of different degrees first. But then, like I said, got sucked back in and, and did go the social work path. I was initially working in a domestic violence shelter through kind of my final internship and then doing some volunteer work with them. And... My supervisor there just had a connection with the department. I was approaching graduation. I had said I wasn't going to go into child welfare. I wasn't going to do it. But, you know, you're getting ready to graduate and somebody says, hey, we'll hand you this job. Uh, It's hard to turn that down. And so I didn't. I said yes uh, and started out in adoptions, was just... A little bit of a backwards way to do child welfare. <laughs>
0: and that's interesting because you came from a family where your father was a police officer serving the community, and you found a different way to do that, even though you were kind of resistant of this particular <laughs> path. Mm-hmm. So you graduated and started working. Can you just
1: give us a brief overview of your path from there to where you are now? Okay. Well, so then it was HRS, Health and Rehabilitative Services. It's been a long time since I've had to say what HRS stands for. <laughs> and then later, of course, became Department of Children and Families. And so I did adoptions, and then And I was a foster care counselor back when you didn't have mixed caseloads. So it was just an out-of-home care population. I didn't have any in-home families. Uh, Then I was a child protective investigator. So I did that for a little while too. I worked for Camelot actually doing therapeutic foster care. First, trying my hand at being a therapist and then figuring out that I really wanted to prepare the foster parents to do the caregiving for these children in care. Uh, so then I became a foster parent trainer and licensing and was doing that. Well, I had a brief stint back at the school of social work at FSU, supervising the interns that got placed within the department of children and families. Oh boy. <laughs> and then also overseeing the department's mentor program. So okay. for new employees coming on, they had mentors that got assigned to them. And so this is before privatization. So before there were CBCs. And then I went to the CBC in Tallahassee. Then it was called Big Bend Community Based Care. And they did Tallahassee and the surrounding, I think it was seven counties. Some of that changed over time. And then they moved into the Panama City and those surrounding counties. It's now called Northwest Florida Health Network. I had a couple other stints in between that and landing at FSS.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about your position at FSS and what that
1: means? So at FSS, I'm the Vice President of Placement Resources, and that means everything connected to placement. So it's the uh, licensing of foster homes, it's licensing and support for kinship caregivers, family finding, and then the placement itself, both with the placement team and the behavioral health team.
0: So FSS functions as the CBC for, is it two or more than two circuits in Florida? Two circuits, Circuit
1: 4 and Circuit
2: 6.
0: Okay. Can you kind of explain, a lot of our listeners are out of state. How does the CBC function
1: in our state because we are privatized? Privatization began um, more than 20 years ago now within the state, and it's moving most of the child welfare functions from DCF to private nonprofit agencies with the intention that if you had local community providers coming together to serve your community, you could get more buy-in, you could better understand the needs of your community rather than it all just being from a state level. And so there are multiple community-based care lead agencies in the state, and we're tasked with ensuring the full array of child welfare services from the areas that I said that I'm responsible for, but also case management and other services and referrals, working with families, front end family preservations, reunification, adoption, kind of the full spectrum.
0: So basically, DCF kind of oversees the CBC, the community-based care agency, which is FSS, where you work, and FSS oversees everything under that. Yep, you got it. (laughs) And you work in Circuit 4 and Circuit 6, and we're obviously in Circuit 6. So a couple of years ago, I was sitting in the same room with some of the other co-hosts, and we were discussing what was on the news, which was Eckerd was no longer going to be with us. We had heard about some of the new organizations that might be coming in. When I heard about FSS, I was actually really excited because we had connected with some people up in that, county. There was a judge there that came and did some training. Uh, We got to hear a lot about some of the innovative solutions they were coming up with. It was quite a bit more problem solving and a lot more emphasis on putting kids with family, which is great because we don't have enough foster homes for all the kids to come into care. We didn't really know what it would look like. I'm sure you had like a different perspective from your side of things. So when you started hearing about FSS coming down to circuit six, what were you hearing about circuit six?
1: I mean, I would say the consensus overall is just that it was clear that it had become an unhealthy system of care, not really understanding the whys of that. And some of those whys don't particularly matter, but it had come to a place where it was functioning in an unhealthy way. And so certainly there's media stories about children and their supervision and some of those things that were going on at the time. But we really felt like we were answering a call, a request to see what we could do. What did
2: you feel is different about FSS
1: than other agencies? So I don't know that I can really compare us to every other agency. You know, I don't have that level of insight into how other agencies function. I can tell you the things that we're proud of at FSS. Number one is our desire to always be good partners and work in collaboration. And that's with everybody within the system of care. And then also always putting children first and then recognizing what's important for children to be as healthy as possible to be on the best trajectories possible to do the best we can with them. And so that's, you know, keeping them as stable as possible, keeping them home when we can, getting them home quickly and getting them to permanency.
0: Someone who works under you, who was on a previous episode here that we lovingly call red. If you have something that needs to be done for a kid and nobody else can do it. If you reach out to her, it's like immediately done. She's like magic, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But also she cares so much about these kids. Other people might receive a request and be like, well, that's not how we do things. She might receive a request and maybe that's not how we do things, but that's what's best for that child. So let's find a way to make that work. I love how she prioritizes, not necessarily the way things have always gone, but the way that we can have the best uh, result for a child. How do we make the experience of being in foster care for these children and for these families a little less crappy. So now that you've been in circuit six for a little while, what do you feel like is the biggest differences between circuit six and circuit four? I would imagine that since FSS is handling both, that the agencies themselves are probably more merging to a similar, like one body, being that the areas are different and the judges are different. What do you see as some of the biggest contrasts?
1: Well, to your point, there's there's certainly some practices that are, are emerging and, and becoming alike. There's also areas where things have to continue being different because the communities are different. I think the team here in Circuit 6 has been able to learn a lot from Circuit 4, but the other has been true as well. I mean, the folks here have been so dedicated and innovative and resilient that they've also developed really great practices over the years. So our Circuit 4 team has gotten to learn from here as well. So it's it's been fun to watch the teams collaborate. A lot of the needs in child welfare are the same wherever you go. We need foster parents. We need quality group homes. We need good front-end services. We need solid behavioral health resources. I mean, those are the same everywhere. I mean, from a placement capacity um, and perspective, I mean, there are some stark differences. The team here, I know you've had a prior guest who kind of talked about how the placement team functions. Most areas, in my experience, have staff who are on call after hours, but they don't literally have staff kind of scheduled around the clock. And we still have staff almost scheduled 24-7 just because of the number of children we're still trying to get into stable placements, into long-term placements. And there's still a lot of those youth that we have to touch on a day-to-day basis. So it takes a lot of work. And so just those dynamics around placement are very different here than in other areas where I've worked.
2: What was the biggest
1: challenge of transitioning Circuit 6 to FSS? Um... Actually, we had a a town hall. So we do a quarterly town hall with all FSS staff and then twice a year. So every other one, we try to do it in person. And so in preparation for this last one, we asked staff to submit questions to us. And so one of the questions submitted to us was, what has been the greatest challenge? So we had this opportunity to talk about it and reflect. And really the greatest challenge is around everything culture. So it's resetting the culture in this area, resetting people's understanding of a healthy system, how it should work from the time a PI knocks on the door to get to adoption. There has been a lot of, I think, confusion and things that have evolved over time, resulting in where the system got to that kind of has to be reset, how people think about it. You know, even remembering, not everyone always felt like they could do what was right. So some of that's prompting, like, does that seem right? Is that right for the child? Does that process make the most sense? Is that efficient? Or are you adding 10 steps that has been there for years and you, and you don't know why now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And so you mentioned a saying, and so in one of my prior roles, my team, I got well known with them for saying, just because it's always been done that way doesn't mean it was the right way. So you always have to step back and look like, why are we doing that? And does it make sense? And and is it going to have the impact we want it to have? That's definitely going to make a difference.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about
1: what FSS has accomplished in Circuit 6 since taking over? So there's a couple of things. Um, So coming in, as you might imagine, we have some strategic priorities. But those priorities were really centered around stabilizing the workforce because there was a significant shortage of case managers at the point that we transitioned from Eckerd. Our internal team, I think, was down to like 25% staff.
0: It was really bad. There
1: was like nobody. <laughs> yeah, which which makes it a challenge, right? It makes a challenge for the case managers. It makes a challenge for the children and families we're serving. It's a challenge for the foster parents to get answers to questions, get their needs met kind of have any idea what direction the case is going in. So yes, there was a significant workforce shortage. So we know we have a placement stability and placement capacity problem. So that was also an area of focus. Permanency, making sure we could get some children out of the system because there were far more children in this system of care than what should have been at that point for the size of the community. And then family preservation, kind of strengthening that front end. So we have made some accomplishments in those areas. So we're now at 94% case management filled. Some of them are in training. So they're not all case carrying and they have protected caseloads. So they're not all on the ground, but that's a huge improvement in workforce stabilization and building that capacity up on the number of kids in care. So we've decreased by more than 500 kids. And so we actually got to say our CEO was so excited. So we had an 18% reduction in the number of kids in out of home care in 18 months. So she loves saying that that meant more than 500 kids you know, we have strengthened the front end. Uh, We've strengthened our family preservation programs. We've got new teams on the ground working with children who are officially safe, but kind of at high risk whose families agree to have some services and interventions. Are you referring to like um, safe at home services? Like safe at home, except for safe at home is technically unsafe kids, which is kind of a weird thing for people to wrap their head around to say we're leaving unsafe children at home. But it only happens when there are safety measures that can be put in place that manage the danger threats that are happening at home. So there were existing providers for that population, both in Pasco and Pinellas, when we transitioned. And so we've kind of strengthened those teams. And then the safe population is brand new for this area. So
0: this isn't something I've heard about. That's what I was. So you're talking about something completely different where you're working with kids who haven't even gotten
1: to that level where they need an in-home safety plan. Correct. Okay. These children don't need a safety plan at all. We call it our STEPS program. The two programs are intended to give CPIs a resource if they're working for a family and they feel like they need some intervention so that they don't ever have to knock on that door again, or they need intervention and we can do it safely in home to prevent them coming into foster care. PIs have to have resources that they trust, that they can refer families to. And so we have seen our out-of-home care numbers have been coming down and our in-home numbers have been going up since implementing those programs. Our removal rates in this area, which is work, you know, in partnership that we did with the sheriff's offices, went from almost nine children per 100 alleged victims, which is kind of a a complicated algorithm. But we're now at 4.2, so we've cut the removal rate in this area in half since the transition. And so that's, you know, our partnership with the sheriff's offices. It's building these front end programs. And so we're really excited.
0: Does that include kids who are going to relatives or are they also considered removed?
1: They're also considered removed. Okay.
0: So that's not even counting the kids that are staying with family. Correct. Okay. So the STEPS program, what you see is these families who are struggling in some way and nobody steps in to help them until it gets to the point where it's almost too late and the kids are removed. And there really aren't resources in the community for people who are struggling. So the STEPS program sounds like something that can help them. So when CPI goes out now, when they don't feel like there's a safety plan needed or removal needed, this is another option for them?
1: That's right. It's another option. And what kind of services happen in STEPS? So steps will, you know, visit and work with the family on what on their goals. They'll make referrals to community resources to get them connected to whether it's food or counseling services, vocational rehab, you know, it could be a wide variety of things that the families need and then continue to work with them, support them, encourage them. We brought in a couple experts to do training with staff to really help them understand the importance of family engagement of understanding where families are, recognizing that kids do grow best at home so that they're willing to put in the work with these families and understand often their own trauma histories. These families have their own generational patterns and trauma experiences. Yeah, like trauma a lot of these kids that yeah. are in care, their
0: parents used to be in care. Yeah. Like that really gets me excited because that's that's where we're going to see improvement in the system. Absolutely. We all know in the system, there is a large amount of racial inequity. What kind of things has FSS done or is planning to do to try and help even the playing field? Yeah, good
1: question. So one of the things that we're very proud of in Jacksonville, and so we're still pretty new here, but in Jacksonville, in our highest removal zip code, we have a Center for Hope. It's a kind of co-community community created, led, structured. Community members helped with the name, designed the logo. It's kind of a one-stop shop. So they do festivals and things like that, but they also have resources where community members can come in. And so that's an effort just to support our highest removal area there in the way that they want to be supported, Like Mm -hmm. not assuming how they want to be supported. I think we're pretty far out locally. I'm doing something like that, but I know we have a dream of being able to do something like that locally. One of our new specialized child placing agencies is specific for recruiting minority foster parents and LGBTQ foster parents.
0: Oh, that's great. Somebody told me recently that foster parent adoption packets are totally different. And instead of 40 pages, they're like
1: five pages now. Yeah, we're doing an adoption pilot in partnership with DCF to streamline because one of the things that happened locally is that we have all these children who are ready for adoption that got backlogged. So we actually anticipate being able to get about 100 adoptions done by the end of the year through this pilot, wow. um, which is streamlining some of those processes, using some of the assessments that are already in place for the kids, the home studies already in place or the caregivers who have the kids so that that process can really get expedited and get the children to pregnancy. That's
0: incredible. A lot of the time I fill out these paperwork, you know, a lot of the paperwork, it's like, how do you not already have this information (laughs) about me? I'm a licensed foster parent. Like, why am I repeating all the same things? Seeing kids come into care when the child is black and the foster parents are white, sometimes a little bit of neglect to some of the basic needs. I'm sure that every foster parent is doing their best, but sometimes the child hasn't had their hair done in three weeks and it's a big knot on the head or they're not putting the right lotion and now the kid's got an eczema breakout. This is something that could be improved on, but what could FSS do to try and improve these situations? Like
1: I've suggested in the past, maybe setting up mentors, some type of mentor program. I think you raise an important issue and we probably need to raise awareness amongst our licensing and case management staff. We want to implement kind of regular foster parent trainings as well. And so that could be a great topic to cover in one of those sessions. We did add a position to the licensing team that works closely with placement called a family resource advocate. And so the family resource advocate makes contact with all new foster parents for their first placements. And so a lot of times then that's a one-on-one attention from somebody who's, who's not your licensing specialist, not your case manager. So we're hopeful that you can then have kind of relaxed conversations. And so that'll be a good person to talk about that. We're also in the early stages of developing a foster parent mentor program. So not specific for that topic, but just to have a mentor program in the area.
2: I definitely think that's important, even for doctor's visits and
0: yeah, you know, and maybe even if we could get like a list of resources, like these are local opticians. These are local hair shops. These are black foster parents. These are foster parents who have experience doing black hair and are willing to let you call them and ask them questions because those of us that do have some experience and knowledge, like I don't mind helping anybody. We want to help. People need to know that they can ask for that and have some type of way to connect with someone who's willing to help them. Hair on kids it's such a big deal. And they come into foster care and hopefully we're taking care of those needs, but we need to take care of all of them and make sure that they can walk into their classroom with their head held high, be able to have some self-confidence in a situation where so much is out of their control and the rest of their life is so difficult.
2: The kids are aware. They they know when they look different and it's at a very young age
0: that they feel it.
1: It's very young.
0: One of the new implementations since FSS took over is the Family Finders Program. And I don't know if it's FSS or it's just what everybody's doing right now is putting a a lot uh, bigger emphasis on matching kids with their relatives, which I think is great. And actually, one of the things we've talked about here before, and Kat's going to be so bad she wasn't here to say it. She's talked about this a lot. Why can't we do genetic testing on kids when they come into care? And that could maybe help us find more relatives that might not have like a close relationship with the family, but be able to take the child.
1: Yeah, interesting idea.
0: One of the biggest challenges that I have seen in that as a foster parent, and let me back up and say I am 100% put as many kids with family as you can, because there's too many kids, we don't have enough beds. <laughs> like, Let's get as many uh, in safe family uh, environments as we can. But one of the biggest challenges that I have seen is I've seen more of it with the increase in effort for putting kids with family is if they don't sign up to be a level one licensed home, they are uh, a relative caregiver without a tether. There's no training. There's no resources. There's very little support for them. Raising children who have been traumatized, raising children who've been removed is a very difficult task. I can tell you, she could probably tell you she's in my house a lot. I don't know how I would do what I do without the support, especially from the licensing team at FSS. How can you help someone who doesn't want to sign up to be licensed? right? And they just want to take the kids. But so many of these kids are coming back into care. I've had more kids come from disrupted relatives over the past year than I ever have. What ideas do you have to try and solve that problem? It's not where I thought you were going with that question when you started.
1: (laughs) We do want to encourage our caregivers to get licensed, have a licensing specialist. We also have a contract for kinship support services. So if nothing else, participate in that kinship support service. We're still working out some kinks around communication when children get placed with family after they've been in licensed care. So the communication loop back to the kinship team to reach out. But I think we've about got those ironed out. Some of it's in the approach. And when you go to talk to a relative caregiver and you know say, we want to make you a licensed foster parent, they're like, I don't want to be a licensed yeah. <laughs> foster parent. So we've been working on on the approach and and how to explain what it is. So, we've actually had about a 12% increase just in the last, gosh, like four months on the number of licensed Kin caregivers. We're moving in the right direction on getting more of those Kin caregivers licensed. We've got about, I think they said 80 in process of getting licensed now. So, we do want them to have the resources and those supports. I think as the system stabilizes and caseloads come down and placement capacity is better, everything will begin to work together a little bit more seamlessly so that those caregivers do get licensed, even if they don't, that they get the supports that they need so that they can care for kids coming to them with their traumas and, you know, everything that happens around removal. I'm glad
0: to hear that there's
1: an increase in the
0: amount of them getting licensed. I wonder if there's even a way to like Match them with a foster parent, like say, like this is someone you could call if you have questions, similar to like the mentorship program, like even if you don't want to be licensed, here's like a list of foster parents who are willing to answer questions for you. Uh, Some of the older kids that I've had were able to get EMDR, some types of therapy like that, that I never knew about before, you know, before I was a foster parent and surrounded by these like incredibly brilliant human beings and these like incredible therapists. Like I didn't, I didn't know what this stuff was and I wouldn't know what types of um, services would be best for the kids. So maybe like if we could do something to add to helping them, I know if, if we can keep kids with family, that's great. And the less kids in care, that's great. But like, how do we make it better so that they're not then getting disrupted and drop back off at the office or whatever? And I can't imagine being a relative and having to disrupt and dealing with the guilt
1: of that. Right. That's going to be harder than saying no from the get go. And we do have that contract for kinship support services, which who actually has peer kin caregivers as part of their team. You know, whenever we can connect family to that resource Ideally, that would be there to help as well.
2: The community center that you have in Jacksonville, do they also offer resources like Jack was talking about? Do they have those resources
1: there, like therapists and different treatment techniques? So they're still pretty new. Okay. Um, So I wouldn't say that they have all of the treatment modalities that Jack mentioned, but they do have resources and then they do have staff to help Mm -hmm. connect them to other resources that aren't there locally.
2: So maybe in the future, you know,
1: like how CARD has
2: the Center for Autism and Research, right. how they have their resource center. It seems like that is definitely a needed place for all the information
0: to be kind of nested into one spot. we talked on this podcast before with the Safe Babies program. One of the things that kind of blows me away about that program, aside from my own experience with it and seeing like firsthand the difference it makes, the numbers are, are impactful enough to make you wonder why we don't do more of that, right? But there's other solution-based court programs that are in use. Rather than being punitive, task-based case plans, we're talking about solving the problems in the family, like directly, even if that doesn't look like what every other case plan looks like. And I think that's why there's such a greater success in it. What types of things does FSS prioritize or do to try and find more
1: solution-based ways of repairing these families? Well, I would say one of the ways is what we've talked about is, you know, doing it at the front end. Right, um, the step program. Through the steps and through FAST, working with families in-home, Giving staff a kind of understanding of the trauma histories and and how to engage so that they can make an impact and make a difference um, is definitely one of the key areas where we focus. Another thing that is getting ready to launch is that we're partnering with an organization called ALEA to bring their intensive permanence specialist program locally. And so it'll be a team of case managers who have a very small caseload and they get dedicated to teenagers in foster care, primarily those who are kind of Connectionless less in appearance, at least moving around a lot, um, not having stability to really form that relationship with them and to dig in and figure out where those connections are. And so it may be back with birth parents. It could be with other family members, other connections. It's not a short program. It's a long program um, in its intensity. But we're excited about bringing that kind of expertise because it'll bring also a different level of knowledge and understanding, not just to those case managers, but everybody kind of interacting with that team as well.
2: I love that. I love that you have that going on for teens specifically.
0: Absolutely. That's huge. We know that a lot of social workers have often had some type of history with child welfare, whether it was someone they know or themselves. When that happens, you bring a little bit of your own trauma into who you are. We all come with our junk to the table, right? What ideas do you have that could help foster parents, case managers, licensing to not project their own trauma experiences onto the cases that they're working on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think coming into this work, we all have to take a look at our own histories and perceptions and preconceived ideas And try to have an awareness on how we're responding to things. We know it's important in child welfare to take care of ourselves. We're exposed to traumatic stories all the time. And that takes a toll in addition to whatever we've come to the table with. So it's important for self-care. It's important for leaders and supervisors to make sure their staff are being mindful and paying attention to that. And doing what they need to to stay healthy.
2: What is the most important thing that you are going to be working on in our circuit over
1: the next year? So strengthening culture, which I mentioned, that remains as the foundation of everything that we're doing. And so that's, you know, building up our local leadership, helping them be as strong as they can. For me personally, in my role, it's really a focus on placement, stability, and capacity. And so it's really taking a look at bringing necessary specialized child placing agencies to the area for specialized foster homes. We have a lot of youth with complex needs, trauma backgrounds that make it challenging for them to get into a stable placement. We have a lot of children coming in with autism and other developmental diagnoses. So needing foster parents who are prepared to parent children with those needs, having some specialized group home capacity also for these kind of most complex teens. I would love to get teens out of group homes and into foster homes. I mean, it's miraculous what can happen very quickly in moving into our foster home setting. Whether we'll get to that goal over the next year is hard to say because there's a lot of work that has to happen, but it's definitely on the list.
0: What is something about our circuit that surprised you in a positive way?
1: So I kind of alluded to it earlier related to the dedication of the staff. It's true for the foster families too. It's a little unusual in my experience to have a system of care where the players within it are truly invested in the strength of the system and the success of the system and interested in problem solving, and asking questions and trying to find solutions. So we've been really impressed with the strength of the people who are here. We've got community partners too, who have come to the table and said, how can we help? How can we be a voice? How can we help connect dots? And so in my experience, it's unusual to have so many people in a system from different facets of the system, all be so committed to the success. And so I think that's And my biggest surprise in a positive way.
2: Tell us about your best day working in child welfare and what happened to make it so.
1: No, you like this question. There's a lot of good days. I don't know if there's a best. I like to kind of collect small wins. I don't have to have these big momentous moments to keep going. So small wins on whether it's, you know, seeing a child gets the right level of care or see a child get to a long term placement. So I move out of a group home into a foster home. We're playing around with, it's it's not really a professional foster parent model, but we're playing around a little bit with kind of a foster parent who's connected with one of our child placing agencies that what she does is foster these really high trauma, complex teen girls. And so we had a couple of girls that had been unstable moving around placements very frequently. And so we moved them in and... been about four months no runaway episodes during that entire time it's just again evidence of what we know that children do better in family settings so whether it's biological family or people who are connected to family or just foster caregivers group home placements serve a place and you know are great for a lot of kids but our kids need those connections and they need somebody who's not going to give up on them so when we can make those kind of differences that's a good day
0: I feel like a lot of foster parents are scared of taking teens because they just don't know. Right. Right. Like, I thought it'd be cool if we had a program where kids from the group home get matched with foster parents for like a weekend or like a holiday. Like, let's get them out of the group home so they can come for Thanksgiving dinner. I think foster parents would be willing to be like, hey, I'll take a teen for a night or I'll take them for Thanksgiving dinner. And then once they did that more, they would be more open to it. And creating relationships, and even if they don't take this kid long-term, there's somebody advocating for this kid who's living in a group home. Yeah, getting kids out of group homes would be great. Obviously, we need them because there's not enough foster homes, but maybe we can solve that with all these kids
1: going to relatives. If you could change three things about foster care, what would they be? Well, since we're talking about teens and magic wands, I would... Love to see almost all teens in care in foster home settings instead of residential settings. I would love to see all siblings placed together, whether it's two siblings or eight siblings, be able to be together in in one home. I don't know. I think healthy systems where all of the children who really can safely stay at home with their parent or parents do, that they don't need to enter foster care at all.
2: I think my favorite thing you said was about the little wins, that those are what really are your overall best experience probably working in this system. Because even as a parent, right, you you have to think of the little wins. So whether you're working for your career or you're the day-to-day taking care of your kids, whether you're a biological parent or a foster parent, every day is hard. And just getting through those little wins...
1: Little wins and baby steps.
2: Absolutely. So I really liked what you said about that. That's really resonates, I think, with me and many people that will be listening to this. Well, thank you so
1: much for joining us today, Tori. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.